We've been in the, uh, the Gospel of Mark uh, these last number of weeks, and one of the neat things that, um, that we've seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, and actually something that we see throughout Scripture, but something we've been able to see recently, and we'll see again this morning, is that uh, Scripture has these, uh, these themes, uh, themes that are uh, planted and begun, if you will, in the Old Testament, that are traced throughout, you know, perhaps the law, uh, the, the history of, of the people of Israel through the prophets, these themes that are picked up and, and, and greater, greater clarification is given to it as it goes on. And then the New Testament, when they are picked up again, you know, even further clarity is given to us. You remember last week, and really the last couple of weeks, we I talked about that clean and unclean theme or motif. Um, and how we, there are things that we saw there in the Old Testament concerning the people of God, and how it's ultimately pointing to the spiritual reality that finds its total fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Uh, we can think of similar themes of light and darkness, of uh, death and life. Uh, and even this morning, we're going to be taking a look at you know, blindness and sight a bit as well, something that has its root even in, in Old Testament Scripture, but we're finding that the answer to all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And so we'll have that privilege of looking through that this morning. I would invite you to please stand for the reading of God's Word from Mark chapter 8, read verses 1 through 10, our whole text through verses 1 through 26. And, and as we're reading this, a passage which may be familiar to us, it's the, the feeding of the 4,000. A lot of what we're going to see this morning is, is what happens after this. Uh, is where the focus is given to it. Uh, But let's read our passage this morning, Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, as we are again confronted uh, with the power of Christ, uh, with Him speaking forth, uh, Lord, which was nothing, something. Uh, God, the power even of creation, which is at work in Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we ask that You would give us hearts that are ready to worship and praise the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God, give us clarity and insight uh, as we hear His words, as we see uh, what He does, Lord that we might come away changed on account of it. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Please be seated. When we talk about uh, an experience, perhaps being a real eye-opener, 
Uh, what we mean by that is that there is something that has happened that has changed our perspective. It woke us up in some area where we were previously asleep. It was a real eye-opener. Well, yesterday, as Matt was praying as well, yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. I think nearly everyone who is old enough to remember, they remember precisely where they were when they heard the news or, or saw it on television. Um, it has, leaves this indelible imprint upon your memory. Now, I was in the, uh, the hallway of my school. I was a senior in high school at Richmond Christian School, and I was in between classes, and I was walking by uh, Mrs. Kisner's class. And there was a group of students that were there around a TV, and I popped my head in, and I was in disbelief at what I was seeing. Um, it, was, it was something where you didn't even have like a category to even understand what was happening. Is this, is this a movie? Is this some kind of joke? What is it that's, that's going on? It's, it's something difficult to, to take in. And uh, I remember soon after that, uh, Ms. Kisner, she dismissed, I said, get out of here, you have classes to go to. And she, she you know, sent us all away. Um, and then it was just the next period after that, we got a call uh, on the, the speaker saying, school's dismissed, go home, uh, be with your families. And uh, again, it was one of those things that I've never experienced anything like that big since. Um, and I know we could go around the room and we could share story after story of, of how it affected us, of of just the, the impressions that were put upon our minds and our hearts right there in that moment, and perhaps even beyond that as well, not just in the, in the days and weeks and months that, that followed, but, uh, but even today. I believe there are things that, that perhaps have, have stood with us. We all have these stories, the, the emotions that we felt. You know, so many people have shared about how that day was such an eye-opening experience for them. It was eye-opening, and perhaps it was the first time they ever felt that America was genuinely vulnerable to an outside attack, thereby their own life was much more fragile than they ever realized before. There are people whose eyes were open toward important issues of community, realizing that, that some things we allow to cause division between us really are trivial in light of some of the bigger issues of the world. For so many, it took something so monumental, so tragic, like 9-11, to see what was true all along and to point out how blind we can be to such foundational truths. While that infamous day exposed our blindness and it opened our eyes towards some worldly matters, Christ has done far more to expose our blindness and open our eyes towards spiritual truths that we so desperately need to hear. In fact, here in Mark uh, chapter 8, in our passage, it points out, uh, what it points out are a number of attributes of spiritual blindness and giving us insight actually into, into what it looks like, what this spiritual blindness looks like and then pointing us toward the only remedy we can have for it, which isn't some great experience, it isn't some realization, but the remedy, as we'll see, is a person. It's Jesus Christ. What we'll see is that because Christ is the only cure for spiritual blindness, then let us walk in the light 
that He has given to us. First thing that we see here is that blindness is ignorant, that it's ignorant. And this is actually in light of, of the passage that we just read in the first ten verses there, the, the passage of Jesus feeding the 4,000. And you're likely thinking, if not before, perhaps now, wait a second, didn't we just read something just like this just a couple of weeks ago? In Mark chapter 6, uh, verses 30 through 44, toward the feeding of the 5,000. And here, just two chapters later, Mark recounts this other miracle. This isn't, you know, Mark is misremembering and got, you know, put in a little bit later. No, you're thinking of the 5,000 earlier. No, this is a, a separate uh, thing that happened, a separate experience that took place. Again, the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus fed this great multitude. And again, such a small number of fish and amount of bread. And there is a bit of overlap uh, that we see here between the feeding of the 5,000 and feeding of the 4,000 as to what Jesus is pointing out by performing this miracle. But there are also a few unique things which demand our attention uh, that Jesus is, is pointing us toward. First thing, and this is actually an area of a bit of overlap, is that Jesus is reminding the people, he is showing the people that he indeed is the God of Israel. I remember, especially from the, the book of Exodus, when the Israelites were in Egypt, they were enslaved, yet God miraculously redeemed them from the hand of Pharaoh. He sent the plagues one by one, culminating in the night of Passover, when he took the life of each firstborn son from every household, but passed over each home that had the blood of a spotless lamb upon their doorways. And Pharaoh, as you know the story, he relented. He let the people of God go. He again changes his mind, though, just a short while later and pursues Israel to the Red Sea, where God again proves and shows his power to deliver by dividing the Red Sea and allowing Israel to walk on dry land while causing Egypt to be swallowed up by death. Yahweh proves Himself over and over to Israel of His his power, His provision, and His care for His people. Yet in Exodus 16... We have the crossing of the Red Sea in chapter 14. Chapter 15 is the, the song of Moses, the celebration of God's people uh, in light of, of crossing through the Red Sea and God uh, conquering Israel's and God's enemies. There is another account of the provision of God, of turning the bitter water sweet. And then Exodus 16, again the next chapter, after the deliverance and celebration of Israel from Egypt, it says this in verse 2. It says, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So Israel grumbles for its lack of food, and God in His compassion says this to His servant Moses in the next verse, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. 
It is the Lord God of Israel who rains down bread from heaven, who creates out of nothing, who shows compassion to His people. When Jesus displays His power to take a mere seven loaves and a few small fish and then feed 4,000 people whereby there are seven basketfuls left over, it is nothing short of a miracle on par with and reminding the, the, the crowd of God's miraculous provision in the wilderness. In fact, it says there in, back in Mark chapter 8, where it says the, the desolate place there in verse 4. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? That word is wilderness. It is the same word used over and over again in the New Testament for wilderness. Jesus is saying He is not some new God that is coming to them. He is the God of their fathers. He is the God of Moses. The God who provides and cares and nurtures. He is the God who knows when we have no food. Who knows when we are running on empty. When we are on the cusp of fainting physically, spiritually, emotionally. He is the God who feeds His flock, who can multiply our nourishment. And He is reminding them of who He is. He is not only the God who has redeemed Israel, but actually what He's saying here also, yes, He is this God who has uh, redeemed the people of Israel, but He is also the God of the Gentiles. That is what He is also saying, even specifically here, uniquely here. Notice some of the details that Mark includes in this miraculous feeding that are different than the feeding of the 5,000. We are told uh, back in, in, actually in chapter 7 and in verse 31, that they were in a place called Decapolis, a place with a Greek name that had a significant Gentile population. This is where Jesus was. This was a miracle done not only before the Jews, but before a great multitude of Gentiles as well. Jesus seems to be underscoring this point as well in his follow-up conversation, actually, with the disciples. Even skip down with me to, in chapter 8 to verses 19 uh, through 21. Notice what it says there. He's, he's, uh, and we'll pick this up later on. He's speaking to his disciples who, who have apparently missed the mark on their understanding of what took place. He says, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And he said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Now, numbers in the Bible can be a very tricky thing. There is a history in the church of people going crazy with numbers to find all kinds of secret meanings behind them. Ultimately, I believe that when people do this, a lot of times it's a power grab move where people think they possess some kind of secret knowledge that requires you to follow them so you can have it too. Be wary of extensive numerology of looking too far beyond the numbers. However, all that being said, when Jesus is bringing attention to the numbers and he says, do not realize the numbers here, then it's probably important. 
They took up 12 baskets at the 5,000 and seven at the 4,000. What significance would 12 have to these Jewish fishermen? The number of tribes of Israel. Again, Jesus pointed out the leftovers, but to the 4,000, seven, as in creation and the prophecies of Daniel and many other places in Scripture which carry out the idea of fullness and completion. The Old Testament is filled with descriptions of the fullness of the Gentiles that God would bring in Gentiles from all over the world to enter into His covenant and be a part of His people. Jesus is extending Himself toward the Gentiles, offering the same spiritual food that has been offered to the Jews. Jesus is the bread of life for the Jews and for the Gentiles. He is communicating to His disciples, to the crowds, to the Pharisees about who He is and what He has come to do. And He does so to absolute crickets. There is not a response of any positive sense from anyone around. And in fact, what we see here in the next two sections is a negative response toward, toward what Jesus has just done. Is there's not an amen, there's not a hallelujah, not a revival, only as we'll see there's confusion and ignorance They have no clue what Jesus is truly offering to them. He is not trying to merely fill their bellies, but to offer them the living bread which came from heaven. Jesus says, for if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever, he says in John 6. And the bread that Jesus gives for the life of the world is his flesh, he goes on. Spiritual blindness misses what Jesus is truly offering. It is ignorant to the greater meaning behind what Jesus is doing. So often we can be satisfied with just the bread, just the gift, and fail to cling to the giver of the gift and fail to cling to the provider. God didn't want Israel to love the manna. He wanted them to love Him. Jesus didn't want the Jews nor the Gentiles to love the fish and the loaves. He wanted them to love Him. God doesn't want you to love the money, the food, the roof, the family, all the ways that God has provided for you, which are meant to drive you to Him to love the giver of these good things. This blindness, as Mark describes it, it is not only unaware and ignorant, but he goes on and he says that this blindness, it seeks a sign. It's looking for something more than what Jesus has already offered and given and shown. Look there, back in our text in Mark 8, verse 11. It says that the Pharisees, they came and began to argue with him seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. 
we have this strange obsession with signs. There's a story I know I've told to the students, I think probably even multiple times, um, but it is something that was told to me by uh, a, a teacher that I had when I was growing up in church. And it was an individual that he was very bold in his faith, was always looking for opportunities to share Christ with others. And he shared this story with me. Uh, he said that he was on an airplane. He loved going on airplane rides uh, because, as he said, he always had a captive audience to share the gospel with them. They couldn't go anywhere. Um, so as he tries to lean into a conversation uh, with this individual, someone who was very learned, someone who had a great education, uh, and he is talking to him about uh, about his faith, or this other person, his, his lack thereof. And he says, I am, I am not a Christian. Uh, I believe that, you know, I do not believe that God exists. Um, you know, there, there's nothing that could really persuade me. He says, well, you know what? I could be persuaded. You know, I feel like, you know, if there was just sufficient evidence, if there was sufficient evidence to point me that the gospel was true, to point me that, that God existed, uh, then, you know, then perhaps I would believe. And so then uh, this guy's name is Scott. Scott, he, uh, he, he speaks to this, this person, and he just goes down this, just this list of evidences for the trustworthiness of Scripture, these evidences for the existence of God, not just of God, but the God of Scripture, uh, the evidence uh, for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, on and on and on, and one after another. The person says, no, it's insufficient, insufficient, I don't believe it. And so finally, Scott asks him, and he says, well, tell me this. What would it take? What would you have to experience? What would you have to hear? What would you have to see for you to believe that the God of Scripture is true and alive? And he said, you know what? If God were to come down and just meet me, just face to face, just right in my, at my house, and say, I am the God of Scripture and I am alive. He said, if God would do that, then I'll believe. So Scott, he said, but would you really? And the guy, in genuine honesty, which I'm very appreciative of, he said, you know what? Probably not. I'd probably think I was hallucinating if I really experienced that. I'd think there was something wrong with my mind, that there was something wrong with my brain synapses or something, where I still wouldn't believe it. There is this weird relationship that we have in our spiritual blindness with signs of our wanting more and more and unsatisfied with what it is that Christ has already been offering to us over and over again. We want more and more never satisfied with the signs that God has already given to us. Because it ultimately is never a, if I see it, I'll believe it problem, but it is a blindness and a spiritual problem. Jesus already gave the Pharisees signs. And what did they say about them in Mark 3? Do you remember? They said, those are the works of Beelzebul. Those are the works of Satan. When in reality, the Pharisees are, it actually says that he is testing Jesus. Or literally, he is, they are tempting Jesus to take the easy way apart from the Father's will. That's what they're trying to get him to do, do this, this easy way outside of God's will because he's already shown them. Now tell me, who else tempted, J tempted Jesus to take the easy way outside of God's will? But it was Satan at the temptation of Jesus. The reality is our need for Jesus to prove himself beyond how he already has is not only an evidence of spiritual blindness, but is a work of Satan. 
Christ and his works and signs are sufficiently revealed to you through his word. God has already given us, says in 1 Peter 1, all things pertaining to life and godliness. It says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that all Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for correction, for reproof and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, nothing lacking, equipped for every good work. That lack of satisfaction in God showing Himself to be your Lord, your Savior, your God saying you need Him to do more than what He has already done by sending His Son to the cross and bearing your sin and bearing your shame is from the pit of hell. Blindness seeks a sign. It is entitled and unsatisfied with Christ's offer of Himself as sufficient for our lives. But it's not merely active in its opposition toward God, but it is actually also passive in that it is forgetful. Blindness forgets. Look back with me in verse 14. It said, Now they had forgotten to bring bread. That is the disciples. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Jesus is warning the disciples of the the leaven, that is, the sin of the Pharisees and of Herod. Leaven is repeatedly used in the Gospels by Jesus as as a metaphor for sin, And he uses leaven as this example because although it might seem small, leaven is something very small which is inbred. It then affects the whole thing, causing it to to rise. There's not one, one inch of a loaf of bread that is not affected by the leaven. So too is that true of sin, that there is no sphere, no arena of our life that is not hindered, that is not affected, that is not corrupted by sin. He is warning the disciples of the Pharisees' sin of unbelief, which the disciples are apparently flirting with by their forgetfulness. You know, it is amazing how just even in our forgetfulness, how we can put ourselves in such danger. I learned of a new definition to the word whiteout when I lived out in Wyoming. We usually just think of it as something that you put on paper to get rid of a mark with a pen. But out west, when there's a whiteout, that means the snow and the wind is so bad, you literally cannot see the hood of your car. It's crazy. 
All of a sudden, everything just white. You cannot see the road. You're hoping you can maybe see the top of a power line to guide you along the side. And if you are stuck in one while you are driving, uh, you're, I mean, it's, it's, it's ugly. Because if you just stay there, then maybe there's a car that has a better vision than you do, and they can, they'll keep going, and then you're just stuck in the middle of a highway, and you, even vision still isn't that clear. Whiteout is something that is dangerous. And again, if you are stuck in one, then you don't have a whole lot of options at that point. You can forget when it starts to snow, when it starts to blizzard, and you think, you know, it's, it's not that bad. And you forget the, the dangers of it. Then you can be in a rough situation. And that's precisely where the disciples found themselves. They were forgetful. They were forgetful of who Jesus was, of what he had been doing. And it was leading them down a path that was dangerous forgetting their danger, and they were forgetting where true safety was found. Now, this disciples' blindness, you know, perhaps they were just dull. Perhaps they're arguing about the bread because, wait, Jesus said something about leaven. Hey, do we have any bread? Like, can we go look for some bread? See if we have any. Is, this what, is Jesus asking for some bread? Is that what he's doing here? Perhaps they're just dull, and they're, they're associating what Jesus just said. Leaven, okay, we need some bread. Uh, but Jesus is saying to them, no. Do you not remember? I think it's much more likely that the disciples were, once again, because they were regularly led by, by what they were seeing, that they were likely hungry again. And they were talking about, hey, how much bread do we have? I'm, I'm getting hungry. Oh, we only have one loaf. Rats. <laughs> Wish we could do something about that. And yet there is Jesus in the boat with them. The disciples had so quickly forgotten. They had failed to reflect upon the miracles of Jesus. If they wanted bread and were fearful they were going to starve, they forgot that on their boat was the one who had sent manna from heaven. If they had merely thought the miracle was all about feeding, feeding people's bellies, and they had forgotten that Jesus was offering to both Jews and Gentiles spiritual food. They had either forgotten who Jesus was or they forgot what he was doing. Either way, it showed their utter blindness and their forgetfulness. Kent Hughes once said this. He said, There is no better shield against spiritual declension and weakness than Christian remembering. There's no better shield against spiritual declension and weakness than Christian remembering. It is ingrained in our spiritual health and in our spiritual growth from the setting up of the 12 stones on the other side of the Jordan River, remembering God's faithfulness to bring his people into the promised land, to our taking of the Lord's table in remembrance of Christ and of his sacrifice for us. We can get so busy simply just doing the things, doing that which we feel like we're required to do practicing the practices of Christianity that we fail to reflect and to remember. We read our Bibles, we close them and go about our days. We pray for a good day, give thanks for our food, but go about our lives in forgetfulness. It's like I would look at my ring on my hand yet fail to spend time with my wife, fail to celebrate with her, fail to honor her, 
forget her. It says the blindness. It would be blindness to the true meaning of being married if I merely just recognized my ring or even just recognized my wife, but failed to reflect and celebrate and remember. To fail to remember the Lord's work in your life is evidence of blindness. To fail to sit before the Lord, but to simply go on to the next thing is grounds for a warning from Jesus to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. To fail to see and reflect upon the power of Jesus Christ in all things ought to give you concern that you may be closer to the blindness and judgment of the Pharisees and Herod than you thought. After warning the disciples and Pharisees about blindness, Jesus displays in action the remedy for their malady. Look now with me in verse 22. It says, And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. I want you to hear me on this. Only Christ can heal blindness. Only Christ can heal spiritual blindness. No amount of consuming information, no amount of meditation, no amount of merely trying to rid yourself of sinful practices, no amount of pursuing good works will ever give anyone sight. Only Jesus can heal blindness. That's what he's ultimately trying to say. Now, the passage has some kind of funky aspects to it that we're maybe a little surprised by. This kind of healing in two parts, the spitting on his eyes, I might be a little alarmed by. Um, and there's, there's plenty of, of speculation that have run everywhere as to why Jesus is doing this. Let me tell you what it's not. Jesus did not heal this man in two parts because the first one wasn't good enough. <laughs> because it was, oh, I needed a little bit more power. Let me, do, let me try this again. Or this takes me two, he, two times to heal for that's, that's not the case at all. It is not a, an issue of power whatsoever. And again, there are speculations of what Jesus is doing. But know this. Christ does not give us eyes to see so that we can see trees walking. He gives us eyes so we can see Him and Him to the full. I think it's likely that what Jesus is doing is this kind of halfway healing is likely a bit indicative of perhaps where the, where the disciples were. That they saw without really seeing. That they knew some things about Jesus and, and even had some, some seedlings of faith. But Christ is calling them into so much more. 
And this was not just some, some you know, minor kind of fogginess that was in the disciples' hearts, and it wasn't on this man. I mean, to confuse trees with people is pretty significant to take, you know, the, the pinnacle and the apex of God's creation. Is that a tree? I mean, that's significant. I wonder if this is where Tolkien got his ents from Lord of the Rings. I had to say it, by the way. As you hear these descriptions of blindness, that it is ignorant, that it seeks a sign, that it forgets. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, that sounds a little bit too much like me. Well, I have good news for you. Jesus heals blind people. Jesus is regularly in the business of healing blind people. If God is convicting you this morning about your spiritual blindness and you feel that weight, you feel that that conviction, that is God removing the scales from your eyes, giving you the grace of conviction. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and today will be the day of salvation. even as those whom God has given eyes to see, that God has given you eyes to see that you were once in darkness and now you, you walk in light, yet sin has a way of then fogging up our vision, fogging up our eyes, darkening our sight, perhaps even a bit like the disciples, whose vision of the Lord and the world around them was dimmed by earthly expectations and by their own pride. Jesus not only gives us eyes to see, but He restores our vision over and over and over again as we come to Him with our fuzzy vision. And we say, God, give me clarity. Give me clarity to see You for who You are. God, this world, these, what I'm seeing around me, I'm seeing trees when I should be seeing people. Lord, I need restoration. God, the things of this world are giving me this, this fuzziness, this, this fogginess. God, I need clarity. I am, I am weak. I am still wrestling with my sin. We need to respond by using those new eyes that Jesus has given us and beholding our Savior, running to Him, looking to the author and to the perfecter of our faith. You hear that? He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. He does not give us salvation and then leave us idly by to our own devices. But He says, keep coming to me. Keep running to me. I have left you a helper who lives and dwells within you. I am seated at the Father's right hand, regularly interceding for you. Would we but run to Him, find Him in His Word, cry out to Him in prayer, cling to His promises, and the fuzziness is granted greater and greater clarity as we see who God is, as we see who Christ is and what He is doing.
the prophets longed to see our day. They were looking forward to the day which is before us. The day of the Lord when eyes would behold the Savior. In Isaiah chapter 35, listen to what the prophets not only were looking forward to, but that day which has come, which is before you today, to not just have once, but to come over and over again to enjoy and to receive. It says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Verse 5, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Waters have broken forth, beloved. Gaze upon the Savior, leap and shout for joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, Life is offered to us, is given to us in Jesus Christ. God, I pray that there are any in here that are currently in darkness. They are in blindness, Lord, thinking this doesn't matter to them, thinking this has no bearing on their life, thinking this isn't true, thinking they have it all figured out. Lord God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would break that blindness. You would grant conviction where we need it. Lord, cause us to hate sin the way that we ought to. And that they would cry out to you as their Savior and their God, as the only one who can give sight. And God, for us as well, as we are, perhaps we are here with dim vision, dim because of the cares of this world, dim because of the things that we have been going through this week and perhaps longer than that. God, I pray you would grant us clarity to see you. Not some separate image of you, but you. And Lord, that you would cause our hearts to swell with love and affection because of your grace and your compassion. Well, grant us this, this day we pray. In Christ's name, amen.